God's promises weren't based on David's perfection or, or worthiness, but they were based on God's perfection and worthiness. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. So in our text this morning, we come to the end of David's life. Now, we've seen him have some great spiritual victories, and we've seen some sad moral defeats. We didn't study those defeats because we did them this summer in our study of Psalms. But we focused our attention in this particular study on some of the highlights from David's life through the lens of Christ. And I want to encourage everyone during this time of physical distancing to read the entirety of 2 Samuel. We left off in chapter 9 last week, but a lot transpires before we come to chapter 23. We find in between these chapters that David sins greatly against God, against Bathsheba, against her husband, against his men, and against all of Israel under his care. And David's sin comes back to discipline him years later in the rebellion of his son Absalom. So I want to encourage you to read through 2 Samuel and see that even though David is in many ways a type of Christ, he's still nonetheless a flawed and failed sinner in need of saving. But as we come to 2 Samuel 23, we come to the end of David's life. These are what we're going to read today, the last recorded words of David put to song. And as we study this section of scripture, I wonder how you would answer this question. Here's the question. How would you sum up your life in 150 words or less? What words would you describe the life that you have lived? What words would you pick that showcase the legacy that you've left? What marks have you left behind? And what would you mention in 150 words? Would you detail the hours that you spent working in the office or the projects that you completed? Maybe the great exploits that you went on? or the milestones that you achieved? Well, after overseeing my fair share of funerals and memorial services, I can say that I've been to a celebration or a funeral of life. I've never been to one where someone just gets up and just reads the words off the page of achievements that the person who's deceased has accomplished. I've never been a part of that. But we come together at a funeral to celebrate not what that person did, but how that in person impacted us. So our legacy is not in prosperity, but in posterity. It's not necessarily about what we accomplished, but who we made a difference in the lives of. So what we truly see in David's last inspired words put to song is not looking back at his own rule and reign, but forward to the beauty and the comfort of a coming kingdom. Now, if you want to see a psalm that, sum, uh, that like summarizes David's life backwards, then you would read 2 Samuel 22, the chapter right before this. And, and there's actually a lot of similarities between chapter 22 and Psalm 18. And David ends that psalm in 22 saying, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, 
and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This offspring, this seed that David refers to is the coming king who will reign perpetually on David's throne. And so chapter 23 here, David's final song, we get a picture of what to expect with this future domain. David speaks about a ruler who would rule in justice. He speaks about a kingdom that would be like a morning without clouds after a stormy night. He describes this kingdom's security and that those who oppose it will not stand in the judgment. But those who are a part of this kingdom will truly be one of a kind because, not because they're awesome, but because of their affiliation with the king. So with that in mind, I actually just described the outline that we are gonna go through together today. You'll notice here, this next screen shows our outline. We're gonna see the kingdom's commander in verses one through 3a, the kingdom's quality in verses three b through five, the boundaries of the kingdom in verses six and seven, and the men of that kingdom in verses eight through 23. So let's start with that first idea, the kingdom's commander. You'll notice that verse one is not yet David speaking. This is a description of David, and it's a great description at that. Look at verse one. It says, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now notice with me that he says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. David never forgot who he was. He was the youngest son in a humble family. He says it's the oracle of the man who was raised on high. In other words, David understood that he was not responsible for his own promotion. It was God who raised him up from shepherd to sovereign, from the pastor, pastor to the prince, from a kid to being the king. He says that he's the anointed. In other words, he was the one chosen by God and empowered by his spirit to lead the people of Jacob. And notice in verse one, he says that he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. His heart panted after God like a deer panting for water. He longed for God and was a man after God's own heart. So that's who is writing this. Now notice verse two, he says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And then the first half of verse three, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. See, David here is affirming that much of his writing was given by divine inspiration. Now, as Christians, we believe in what is called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Verbal means the words themselves in the Bible are inspired, not just the ideas. Plenary simply means all or full. In other words, the Bible doesn't merely contain the Word of God, but 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. So these are not the words of man only, but the Word of God. So when Paul says, breathed out by God, God-breathed, what he simply means is that the writers of the Bible were inspired by God himself to scribe the words that they wrote. In other words, they weren't writing their own thoughts. God used the writers of the Bible to communicate his divine revelation as these men were inspired by his Holy Spirit. We call that inspiration. 
We don't call that dictation, which is how Muslims believe God communicated the Quran to Muhammad. They believe that he just dictated it to him. So dictation excludes the style of the one that's doing the writing and is just kind of an exact replica of what was communicated by the speaker. That's not what we believe. We believe in inspiration, where God inspires an individual to write something, but what is written reflects the style of the one doing the writing. So Paul and John and Peter and David, they all have a unique style. So in these verses, in verses two and three, David is acknowledging that much of his writing has been inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking through him. As a ruler, David has defended Israel and he sought to be a man of integrity, but he fell short. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sins by taking a census, which we read about later in chapter 24. And then we learn about his daughter Tamar and her stepbrother Amnon who abuses her. And so David ends up seeing his own sin against Bathsheba reproduced in the life of his son. And he gets to see, sadly, how that devastates his own daughter. Later in that same chapter, Amnon is murdered by his brother Absalom. So David's sin against Uriah, the murderer, is now reproduced in his son. And then we learn that Absalom's hatred for his father David and his rebellion against his father now leads David to once again have to flee for his life. Eventually, as you read it, you find out that Absalom is killed and David's throne is restored. It's kind of a sad bookend at the beginning and the end of his life where he's on the run. And all of this is a consequence of his folly. David is a flawed picture of an ultimate king who came humbly and was raised on high, an anointed one who came not just to speak the words of God, but is who, who is himself the very word made flesh. And so the kingdom's commander is the son of David, Jesus Christ. Now look at the rest of verse 3, and let's look at the kingdom's quality, verses 3b through 5. Look at it with me. It says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now, notice with me, before we get to verse 5, David's description of this king. Notice that he says he rules justly over men. He rules in the fear of God. He's like a light shining in the morning after a long night of storming. In other words, this king is refreshing. His kingdom is reviving. He renews. There's a fresh vitality that this king brings, and his kingdom will be ruled with righteousness and legitimacy. Dale Ralph Davis says, are we not drawn to this king precisely because we have seen so few of his kind? Where from democracy to dictatorship have we found a ruler so controlled by godly fear and personal righteousness that his tenure actually revives and renews his people? We are used to the leaders of this age, whether elected or imposed, being immoral, corrupt, oppressive, and power grubbing all of which should stir our appetite for the final David and the imposition of his rule and goad us to pray for his kingdom to come. You see, David did his part to rule justly in the fear of God, but even David fell short. Even with his sin, David's kingdom 
was still blessed. But the coming kingdom is going to be marked by justice and wisdom, reverence for God, and human flourishing and, and refreshment. Not only that, but security. Look with me at verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Wow. Here, David is affirming that God has initiated his eternal covenant with the household of David, even though David is still sinful and undeserving of it. And so David states that this covenant, notice, is ordered in all things and it's secure. In other words, there is nothing that David could do to jeopardize the covenant that God had made with him. God's promises weren't based on David's perfection or, or worthiness, but they were based on God's perfection and worthiness. Morgan says, in the divine dealing with us, there is no mistake, no lapse. Nothing has been permitted which has not been made to serve the highest purpose. This is so even of our failures, if like David in true penitence, we have forsaken them and confessed them. It is certainly so of all our sorrows and trials. You see, church, the gospel reminds us that we are worthy of death and destruction, but God in his kindness saved us, not by works that we had done, but by his own mercy. And so God chooses to love us, to redeem us, and to deliver us, and that means that we are recipients of divine love, divine redemption, and divine deliverance. See, there's nothing that my children can do, whether sinful or saintly, to change their status of sonship. Nothing that they can do at all. Now, my kids may do some very foolish things, but that is not going to jeopardize the fact that they are my children. Likewise, they may do something fantastic, and I will reward and I'll bless them, but that, that good work that they do doesn't increase their status as being a son or daughter. That status is eternal. And you and I have likewise been adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1. It says in Ephesians 1, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Wow. This kingdom is certain. This kingdom is ruled in righteousness by a king who's fair, true, and who's set apart. Now, all who are in this kingdom are going to flourish and abound, but not everyone will benefit from this kingdom. And as unpopular as this notion is today, it's still true, some are on the outside of the kingdom. Not everyone is included. This is not an inclusive kingdom, it's an exclusive kingdom. And some will not be won or wooed, they'll be repulsed by the king. By definition, they are his enemies, and we learn about them in verses 6 and 7. And that brings us to this third idea of the kingdom's boundaries. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. Verse 7. 
But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Did you catch what he says there? That even though the coming king will be like a dawn's light, uh, uh, refreshing the grass to grow and flourish, there will be some who aren't like grass, they're more like thorns. So the same light that nourishes one torches the other. And David, notice, calls them worthless. Another translation calls them sons of rebellion. And really, the two are synonymous. Think about it. If you rebel against the king or against God, there's very little worth that you bring to the kingdom, if any. You're actually causing an insurrection, which against an omnipotent ruler is suicide. And so you, like thorns, serve no purpose except as kindling for a great fire. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 13, 41 through 42. He said, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the coming kingdom involves not only restoration, but also judgment. The Bible says in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great promise. Jesus' kingdom then is one of restoration and renewal. And we're seeing his kingdom coming on earth and bringing renewal to every nation, tribe, and tongue. But for those who are not in Christ, there awaits fearful judgment and a day of reckoning. We live in a day where nationalism has risen to a political fever pitch. Now, I have to point this out. Nationalism is different than patriotism. Patriotism says, I love my country. And there's nothing wrong with that. But nationalism goes further and says, I love my country because we're better than every other country. And every nation has borders. Some of them are, are natural borders like the ocean or, or the lakes or the rivers. Some of them have literally walls that divide them. But every country has a boundary. And you enter that country by crossing a boundary or border, and there's something that distinguishes every citizen from every visitor. A country's natural citizens are generally those who are born in that country. And so to bring this to the kingdom of God, God's kingdom is made up of citizens who are not born first, but born again. They're regenerated by the Spirit of God and made new creations in Christ. So we as Christians are not just good people, we are free people. We're not made citizens of heaven because we threw our good works into the mess and God looked at them and said, wow, I'm really impressed by that. We were justified by faith and salvation is all of God from first to last. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that David is describing has boundaries. I've been so convicted lately that the church must have boundaries as well. We might say, maybe on a sign out front, all are welcome. But what do we mean by that? Maybe we mean you're welcome to come and sit in our gathering and, and listen to the claims of Christ and to receive him as Lord. You're welcome to do that, no matter what sin you're involved with, no matter what your background. Is that what we mean, though? Do we mean that you're welcome to appropriate all the riches of the fullness of his grace and then just kind of stop there and self-identify as a Christian without receiving Christ? Well, by no means. And I think that's why I'm more and more seeing the importance of understanding what is the church and who is a Christian. 
and how those two things really do, they really do go hand in hand. God's kingdom has boundaries and not everyone makes the team. Not everyone, sad to say, gets the participation trophy. The scriptures tell us Christ died for the ungodly, but only those who receive him does he give the right to be called children of God. And some guys will not receive him, but are awaiting judgment. Now, I don't think it's by coincidence that we hear David's final song at the end of his life. And then as a sort of epilogue, we read about some of the mighty men that he had around him right after his last words. So let's look at our last section, uh, which is the kingdom's men in verses 8 through 23. Again, we can't divorce the legacy that we leave behind us in the lives of real people. We can't separate the two. So these men are David's legacy. And, and what I want to do is really quickly highlight a few of these mighty men, because the scriptures highlight them, and I think we should highlight them. David had some incredible warriors around him, but he had three in particular that were known as the mighty men. I wish that I would be known as a mighty man. Look at the first one in verse 8. It says, these are the names of the mighty men who, whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachmanite. Oh, wow. A Tachmanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. I don't know why, but I like to call this guy Josh the bass player. I don't know why. It just came to me. Uh, this guy is chief of the three. Now, notice that it said that he fought... Not one, not two, not ten, not a hundred, but 800 men at once. Some scholars believe that was a copyist error. It's so many. And notice that he didn't kill them with bows or arrows, which would have been impressive. Not even with a sword. This guy spears 800 enemies to death. This is incredible. This is definitely a guy that I'd like to be friends with and, more importantly, to stay friends with. Incredible. Well, look at Mighty Man number two, verse nine. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Wow. Eleazar, the son of Dodo. That is a hard one to bounce back from after junior high. <laughs> Eleazar was with David when the men of Israel withdrew. So everybody takes off out of fear, but Eleazar is still there. And all he knows to do is just hang on to his sword, no matter the cost. His hand is frozen to it, faithfully by David's side, weary and worn, but steadfast. Well, look at mighty man number three, verse 11. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Wow, so the Philistines would typically attack right during harvest. And they would pillage the crops right after they invaded. So here's this field full of lentils over here. And Shammah takes his stand right there in the field of lentils to defend what God has already provided. So he becomes famous for defending the lentils. The, obviously, the guy enjoys food. 
but he's willing to stand his ground so that the people of God can have provision and can have nourishment. And then we get two honorable mentions in verses 18 through 23. So look at verse 18 with me. It says, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So we see Abishai uh, throughout First uh, and Second Samuel. He was with David in Saul's camp. Remember when he takes the water and the spear from Saul when he's asleep? That was Abishai. Abishai later saves David's life when he was almost killed later by another giant named Ishbi Banab. And, and so Abishai was one of the fiercest warriors and most faithful men by David's side. But even he didn't get to be one of the three. He was known as a commander or the commander of the 30. These are incredible men. But then we come to the last one in verse 20. Look at verse 20. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Verse 21. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Verse 22. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Listen, any guy who goes down into a pit to grapple with a lion while it's also slippery and wet and frozen and snowy, that's a guy that I also would like to sign up to lead my team of bodyguards. <laughs> this guy's not afraid of lions. He's not afraid of good-looking Egyptians. He even goes and takes the spear out of the guy's hand, his own weapon, and uses it to strike him back. Wow. After reading through this list, these men almost seem legendary. But let me remind us of their condition when they first came into David's service. 1 Samuel 22, 2 says, And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So notice these men came to David in distress. They came to him in debt. They came to him bitter in their soul. They didn't have much to offer David except baggage and liability. But did you see what changed? David became their captain. He became their commander. Who they were wasn't important. It was who they were affiliated with that changed their status. So church, let's bring this home. We've constantly been reminded throughout this series and First and Second Samuel, that we are not David, that Jesus is a true and better David. So if David has been a great picture, a, a great foreshadowing type of Christ, then who are we in this text? Well, we're not the faithful king who keeps the covenant, uh, who are men after God's own heart. Then who are we? We are the king's mighty men. You see, we've been drawn to the king himself. 
when you and I came to Christ, we too were discontented. We were distressed. We were dealing with an insurmountable debt that we could never pay. Our souls were bitter as we lay in the depths of our sin and death, awaiting certain judgment. And yet, we were drawn to Christ who became our captain. And now our affiliation with the king has changed our status forever. And we are truly now his mighty men. Listen to this quote. Those who live close to Jesus hear the longings of his heart for draughts of love from Africa and India and China. And like these mighty men, they turn their backs on home and wealth and risk or lay down their lives to win for Christ the affection and service of nations held as hopelessly in the power of Satan as the well of Bethlehem was in the hand of the Philistine. We may not have to fight any physical battles for Christ, but you and I know what it is to cling to our sword no matter what enemy we may find ourselves facing. Now, we may not have to slay any handsome men or lions in snowy pits, but as Christ's mighty men, we can and do destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. And as the scripture tells us, we take captive every thought to obey Christ, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You and I don't necessarily take up arms to defeat a physical enemy, but we certainly know what it means to take up our cross, knowing that the ultimate enemy, sin and death, has been stripped and laid bare of its power, utterly ransacked by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And listen, before you start boasting in your own might or wisdom, let's not forget who we were when we first came to Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So who do we boast in if not in ourselves? Well, we boast in our commander, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, the seed of David, the offspring who would sit on his throne forever, the man who was truly raised on high, will one day come again to judge the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus will come to crush his enemies and bring swift and final judgment to all oppression. Jesus, we know, has already led captivity captive, and he's brought redemption to all who would believe. But one day, Jesus is going to come to return and consummate his kingdom. And to bring this home for all of us who are watching, I just want to say it this way. Deprivation stirs desire. All the events unfolding in the world today are continuing to point us to two things, our longing for ultimate satisfaction and our longing for ultimate justice. Deprivation stirs our desire. So the, the longer we live in these corrupt, failing bodies, we realize that the fall permeated and tainted every area of life. 
And this causes a holy discontent where we realize that every idol is lying to me and it's leaving me aching for something that truly brings lasting peace and fulfillment. When we come to Christ, we're empty and distressed with bitterness of soul, and yet he comes and quenches our spiritual thirst. And as we look ahead, we groan with creation, awaiting final redemption. We long for every tear to be wiped away, not in a dismissal or denial of real pain that's been experienced, but in a final act of retribution that satisfies our desire for equity and for recompense. Now, right now, many of us are isolated from one another. We're deprived from meeting together. And I don't know about you, but this deprivation has stirred up such a, such a desire in me, such a longing to meet together with you as a church like never before. And I literally cannot wait to be together and to celebrate the mercies of God in Christ together with our church family. And, and I believe that the Lord is allowing this current deprivation of our gathering to stir up a new desire in our hearts to be together, to gather together again. And for many of us watching this, we're stuck at home and maybe you've lost some employment or some income. Maybe this whole situation just kind of blindsided you. And, and now you realize once again, this world is not our ultimate home. Lest we ever forget, we will never truly be satisfied under the sun. We've found true and lasting satisfaction in Christ. And one day, true and lasting justice will be found as Jesus' kingdom is fully realized. And until that day, may we be found wielding the sword, serving the king, and advancing his kingdom to the ends of the earth. I want to close with the Charles Wesley hymn called Soldiers of Christ Arise. He says, Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal son, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who in the strength of Jesus trusts is more than conqueror. He goes on in his hymn and he says, as he closes it, from strength to strength go on, wrestle and fight and pray, tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. Still let the Spirit cry, and all his soldiers come, till Christ the Lord descend from high and take the conquerors. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.